On today's episode of I Believe Now What, we are finally wrapping up our series on eschatology that was started such a long time ago, and if you wanted to know why it took so long, you can listen to the last episode where I give a little explanation of everything that's really been going on in the past six, seven months or so. But without further delay, I want to thank my friend Trish who came on this show and waited so patiently too for this episode to come out. And I really, really appreciate her doing that because she brought a lot of good perspective. Now with this wrapping up our series on eschatology, I just want to say that you know, honestly, throughout the entire thing, my mind is kind of remained unchanged. I'm probably still in the more so futurist camp, but I definitely see a lot of good arguments coming from the post-millennial side. And instead of just thinking they're a bunch of crazies or anything like that, I definitely have an appreciation for what they say. And I still say that I hold my eschatological beliefs, it's a mouthful, you know, with a very, very loose hand. And I'm not going to sit there and die on that hill. I'm willing to explore different options as long as it doesn't go against the foundations of our faith. But with all that being said, I hope you've enjoyed this series and I hope you enjoy this last episode on pre-millennialism. Starting next week, we will get right back into our Bible study throughout Romans with Romans chapter 7. But without further delay, here is the episode on pre-millennialism. Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of I Believe Now What? And today we are getting into our next topic on the millennium, which is going to be pre-millennialism. And overall, we call this the futurist view on how we uh, would determine these things. So with me, I got friend, recently new friend from TikTok. Name is Trish. Trish, go ahead and introduce yourself. Everybody, my name is Trish. I am originally from Texas, now living in the Midwest. My career path has been that of education. I got an undergraduate degree um, in Concordia University, a little Lutheran school, and then I got a master's degree of education, and I taught for about eight years. But recently, I decided I was done with um, public school education for a season, and I've just been home, so I thought, hey, you know what? I've always dreamed of doing like YouTube ministry, TikTok, social media ministry. So recently, I've just dived into that for the past year, and prophecy is one of my absolute favorite things. It's something that I've actually studied, weirdly enough, since I was about 12 years old. So I'm really excited to be having this conversation today, for sure. Oh, yeah, and uh, the end of times, the uh, like we've defined before, eschatology, the study of the last things, literally what it stands for, it's full of prophecy. So <laughs> that's right up your mm-hmm. alley, and this should be good. So since we're talking about, we already talked, we already had the episode on post-millennialism. If you heard, if anybody out there has heard the episode we did with the overview where I had Tyler from Brewed Up Apologetics on, you kind of got a little bit of taste of premillennialism. You, you know that I am one, so this is going to be challenging for me to try to stay as neutral as possible when asking these questions, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Uh, so explain to us, Explain to somebody, how would you explain premillennialism to somebody, especially somebody who maybe is brand new to the faith and is just discovering these things? Yeah, that's a great question. So I really like to think of the Bible in terms of a really big overarching story that's told many different ways throughout the Old and the New Testament. So from a premillennial perspective, we are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ before his 1,000-year reign of the kingdom on earth. 
a big emphasis within the premillennial position is this idea that there is a final seven-year period. People call it all kinds of different things. I tend to call it Daniel's 70th week because it's based on Daniel 9, 27. But there's this idea that there's this final period of seven years, and the last three and a half years are called the Great Tribulation. And during that time period, we see most of the events of the book of Revelation happening. We see seals, trolls, and and um, not trolls, <laughs> seals. Bits and bowls, so funny. <laughs> you know, which includes a lot of the kind of judgments we saw in Exodus, water turning to blood, locust, plagues, lots of people dying. And I'm sure most people have heard the term Antichrist. That's a very big component of this Great Tribulation time period. There's a belief that there is going to be a serious persecution of Christians and Israel during this time period that's marked by things like the abomination of desolation, the mark of the beast, the false prophet. And it's also believed that it's going to be a time of lots of supernatural wonders, both from the side of the enemy, but also from God's people. There's pictures of the two witnesses that are calling down fire from heaven. There's pictures of this mysterious 144,000 group that's marked and sealed by God and protected from wrath. So there's so many things going on in this final seven-year period, but the difference between futurism and a lot of the other positions is how literal these events are taken. So that would be a really big broad stroke of the final seven years and pre-millennialism. <laughs> oh yeah, that's definitely, that, that, that's honestly one of the best like short explanations I think that I've heard of it. Sometimes I know in my head I'll, I'll overcomplicate and I'll be like, oh, well, I need to explain this and I need to explain that. But, you know, that's a really good overview of what premillennialism is. So one of the things that we talked about in previous uh, episodes when we covered this was specifically how you read the Bible. And if anybody has listened to the one on Postmill that we did with Blake, uh, the big argument, I guess, between premillennialists and postmillennialists, or you could say futurist and partial preterists, well, even full preterists, but that's something for a different topic, uh, uh, is the fact on how you would read some of these prophecies, how you would read the book of Revelation. And that would be, do you take it more literal or do you take it more as a spiritual or figurative type book? And obviously, I, I personally think it's a little bit of a mix of the two. Uh, there is some symbolism in there. We, you'll see images of, you know, a dragon and a pregnant woman and a child, you know, and this is obviously representing, representing you know, Satan, the church, Christ. Uh, but we know that's not talking literally about those things. And But then there's other times where you see an angel flying around the earth, screaming, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I, I would view that personally as something literal that I would read. Now, other people would disagree with that. But that's one of the big things that I think uh, kind of changes your perspective on when you read Revelation. Do you take this literal or are you constantly looking for symbology? And it's always been my default answer. When in doubt, just read it literal. Read what it literally says, because why would God try to confuse people with, you know, the hidden codes and all this kind of stuff. You know, you always see those corny history chose channels, uh, channel episodes, uh, you know, hidden codes in the Bible and, you know, this, the secret code that cracked the Bible, all these different things. I don't think God's trying to hide anything from us. I think he's everything that he wanted to put out there, he put out there and he did it in an easy way. Now I'm going to steal a line from 
uh, John MacArthur on this, who is a premillennialist, have a couple different views on that than, than he does. But what he said is, you know, this is a book that starts with a blessing and ends with the blessing. Why would God try to hide a whole bunch of stuff in this book if it's blessed to whoever reads this book? So one of the big things that focuses around premillennialism is the rapture especially on the inner connections of premillennialism, because like we talked about, there are different factions within the futurist view, just like there's different factions in the preterist view. Uh, and w one of those big ones is focusing around the rapture. Do you want to talk about that a little bit in the different views? Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's definitely hotly debated within this premillennial camp. So there's about four major views. So we talked about this idea of a final seven year period, pre-tribulationist, which would be in the camp of Tim LaHaye and left behind most Calvary Chapel churches. <laughs> and honestly, when you just do prophecy, pretty much everybody that pops up, I feel like is a Seventh-day Adventist or a pre-tribulationist well, teacher. You, you mentioned <laughs> left behind, and I, I had to laugh uh, because, you know, like when I was a young child, that that's where I got my eschatology from. You know, I grew up, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a Christian home. They, My parents are very much, uh, you know, pre-trib, pre-millennial, but left behind was one of those things where I first saw, and that was my first impression at the end of the times, you know, I was young, I wasn't really reading my Bible, and I just assumed, okay, this is it. This is exactly how it's going to go. Clothes being left out and all this other stuff, <laughs> but continue on. Yeah, definitely. And that was the same case for me. I actually came from one of the most popular pre-tribulational churches around, which is Cornerstone with Pastor John Hagee, very strongly dispensational. Oh, yeah, very, very. That's where I got like formed in my doctrines. And I'll get to this a little bit later, but once I actually started reading the Bible, that's when I was like, okay, something's majorly wrong. But before I get to that, I'll tell you about the four positions. So the pre-tribulational camp that's dispensational will basically say that God has somewhat of a separate plan for Israel and the church, and they see the final seven-year period as God's, you know, time period to deal with Israel. There's a time of judgment in many ways, but also a time of restoration and salvation. But they have a tendency to say that the church's sort of path is a little bit different and that the church will be raptured off the planet before this time of tribulation happens. Then there's the mid-tribulational view, which kind of divides the final seven years into the first three and a half, which is kind of like the birth pangs. Things are heating up. Things are getting tough. And they see that more as the tribulation, but then they see the second part as the wrath of God being poured out. So they'll say, we'll be here for a chunk of it, but before things really heat up, and oftentimes they believe before we see the Antichrist, we'll be raptured. Then there's the pre-wrath position, which I've seriously considered, and I do see a lot of strengths for this position. Some people jokingly call it like the three-fourths rapture, because it's not quite at the very end, like traditional post-tribulation no people. They basically think that it happens at the sixth seal before the trumpet. So they see the trumpets as the wrath of God. So they believe that we're going to face the Antichrist, face persecution, face all of these horrible things. Things, but that right before God pours out his wrath as punishment on the world, then the rapture happens. And then finally, there's the kind of classic post-tribulational position. And even those people will vary. Some people will say that it happens at the seventh trumpet. Other people will say that it happens at Revelation 19 when we see Jesus coming on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. But they basically see the rapture happening at the very tail end of everything. So that's kind of a quick overview. <laughs> no, that's a, and that's a good overview. Uh, a couple things I want to mention in case anybody 
uh, wasn't tracking. So you mentioned dispensations uh, and the dispensational position, which is, you know, what you see in, like you said, the Left Behind series uh, coming out of John Hagee's church and uh, John MacArthur's church, other other very popular uh, churches. It's a multi-denominational thing. I don't want to really pin it down to one specific denomination because there's multiple that are in there. But essentially, if you don't know what a dispensation is or a dispensational view, it's something that where God operates differently throughout the Bible. And like me, I consider myself a dispensationalist. I am a very uh, low-key, cautious dispensationalist, if that makes any sense. I'm not uh, a hyper-dispensationalist where I start drawing all these lines and uh, seeing all these different things. But you, you do have to see that God does operate you know, differently throughout the Bible. Still same God, still same plan of salvation. That never changed whatsoever, all the way from before the cross and after the cross. It is still by faith that we are saved, well, by grace through faith. But we do see God's plan operating differently just based upon the time period. And that's all I'll pretty much say on that. Like I said, you can you, the pendulum swings both ways. You can have your crazies in it, and you can have your middle and your far other ends. But that's essentially what dispensational uh, theology is. And this is why they view the rapture happening beforehand. Uh, can, can you elaborate on that? Point to some specific verses that I, that they like to use for, for their case yeah. on that? Definitely. So they'll look at verses basically that says like Revelations 3.10, I will keep you from the hour of trial. They see that as a promise that we won't go through the tribulation period. Or they'll look at like Luke 21 that says, you know, pray that you will be kept from all of these things. And so they'll kind of say, see, you can pray to be kept from all of these things. Or they'll just kind of look at some of the different portrayals of the return of Christ and they'll separate them into different events. So we see in some events of the return of Christ, Jesus coming on the clouds, but then we see other events like Revelation um, 19, where he's coming on a horse and he's waging war. So they have a tendency to see these separate events that are separated by seven years of time. And they will often say things like, you know, God has promised that we're not appointed to wrath. And so they will basically see the final seven years as all of God's wrath. And so they'll say, therefore, Christians can't be on the planet if God's wrath is being poured out, whereas the other positions like pre-wrath or post-trib would make a differentiation between God's wrath and the time of tribulation. And we would point to the book of Exodus with those plagues, how God's people were on the planet, but they were being protected supernaturally by God or Sodom and Gomorrah or Noah and the ark. We would use some of the same Bible stories, but we would have a different application. They would say we're taken off the planet. We'd say we're protected while we're on the planet. And so when it comes down to it, um, really, I think the big difference is what they see as God allowing Christians to go through. Where I personally ran into some challenges with this whole view is when I just read the book of Revelation, I saw martyrs everywhere, people, you know, being slain, and they're standing up for God by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They're not loving their life unto death. And then we see like Revelation 2.10, where basically God is saying, hey, you're going to go through trials imprisonment Satan's gonna put you in prison but stand firm and I'll give you the crown of life so when I looked at all of the things that Jesus said and all of the things that I saw in Revelation I saw a much stronger case for Christians being a part of the Great Tribulation but 
being protected from God's wrath. Because even when you look throughout the book of Revelation, you'll see that some of the judgments like the locusts, they're not allowed to touch people that are sealed by God. And so I just think that there's a way to reconcile <laughs> the, the kind of challenges that we see in a way where we're still on the earth. And so that's kind of the summary of that. <laughs> no, I, that, that and that's real good because uh, we kind of have the same similar story. Uh, I don't know if I was saying it while we were recording, but we were talking beforehand. And I, you know, I was brought up in that post or pre-trib, pre-millennial point of view. I'm going to trip over my words when I keep saying this, <laughs> but that, that's how I was brought up. And then when I started reading Revelation for myself, especially Revelation, I was like, whoa, some of these things don't quite add up. I had questions in my mind that I just didn't see matching up. Like you said, you know, uh, all these people being persecuted and uh, these various, various things that were happening at that time, like, well, who are these people? And then it started making me think like Left Behind series. They made it seem as if people who were left behind will have a second chance to repent and believe. But then when I was reading throughout the Bible, me personally, now correct me if I'm wrong, I could not find any verses to support that there would be people left behind, so to say, <laughs> left behind, and be able to actually believe uh, if that was the case, because the church was raptured. Everything after that in that, in that terminology was going to be for wrath. How were people going to believe? Because in fact, you see the opposite. You see people cursing God, even though all these horrible things are going on rather than repenting and believing. Uh, and what I do, and that's really what kind of brought me onto my belief that I, I think we're going to be going through this. Now, granted, I think it's really wishful thinking, you know, to, to think that that we as the church won't be suffered to persecution. I, I know my father, for one, very big uh, dispensational premillennial view. And he always would point to that verse, like you said, in Revelation, that we are not um, we are not appointed to that, that that hour of trial. But you got to remember, and actually, I believe the translation says wrath. And I would say, I'm like, well, wrath comes when God's actually destroying the world. At least that's how, how I view it. When you see the the horrible, you know, almost at like that, at that, uh, I believe it was the sixth or seventh trumpet you mentioned. Correct me if I'm wrong, of course. Uh, but th that's where I see God's wrath being poured out, not when uh, the the tribulation's going on. That's not wrath. That, that That is part of God's wrath, but it's not the wrath that he's pouring out onto the entire world. And it was just questions like this that got me thinking of, you know, what what if we are going to be subject to this? Why are all the warnings about be ready, I'm coming quickly, uh, all these warnings essentially saying to be ready, you know, that it's going to come like a thief in the night. Why do we got to be ready if we're going to be raptured up before all this happens? So those were just some questions. And I'm sure somebody who is a uh, dispensational pre-mill would, would have some responses to that, but that was just one of the things that kind of changed my mind on it. So you also mentioned uh, that different view about the trumpet, that sixth trumpet being uh, that kind of, for some people, that mark of wrath where they would see the rapture happen. Can you, can you expound on that a little bit more? That's actually something that I've never, I've heard three different views, the dispensational, the mid-trib, and then the post-trib, but I haven't heard too much about that one. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about the pre-wrath and then the seventh trumpet view. So basically in the pre-wrath perspective, they view things happening in the order that John sees the revelation. So they see uh, really clearly the seals, 
followed by the trumpets, followed by the bowls. And so it's really fascinating. If you line up Matthew 24 with Revelation 6, it's like a perfect match. And so you see at the sixth seal what appears to be the day of the Lord. The sun is darkened, the moon turns to blood, the heavens are shaken. We have the kings of the earth going into caves and saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of the lamb, you know, mm -hmm. the one who sits on the throne. And it really, really looks like what the Old Testament and the New Testament refer to as the day of the Lord's wrath. And it is interesting because within that passage, it talks about how his wrath has come. And so they basically see um, the verses like in Second Thessalonians 2, for example, where it talks about our being gathered to the Lord, you know, and the great day of the Lord, they see that as the sixth seal happening. And so they believe that basically we'll be raptured up. And this position is very different than the traditional post-trib. They believe kind of like the pre-tribulational position that we will actually be in heaven while God's wrath is being poured down and that we're like kind of protected for a season. And then at some point, kind of similar to the pre-trib position that we come back and rule and reign with Jesus on the earth. So now the post-tribulational position would say like, no, we're here for the seals and we're here for the trumpets. They would see basically the um, seventh trumpet as the rapture because there's things that say like, you know, now now is the time for, you know, the saints to get their rewards and the world to be judged. You know, it talks about how the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And then they look at the Corinthians passage that talks about, you know, at the last trump, the dead will be raised, you know, incorruptible. So they're seeing all of these symbols, um, or not symbols, all of these different events lining up with the seventh trumpet. And so I actually personally have been really torn between the two positions. And there has been people that will try to reconcile them by basically saying that there's overlaps between the seals and the trumpets or some people will say that we see about four different instances of the rapture and the coming of the lord in the book of revelation and so it's not that these things that keep looking like the rapture and the end are happening over and over it's actually that there are different pictures and perspectives of the same event mm -hmm. but kind of no matter matter how you slice it like within this view like we're at least going through the part with like the antichrist and the mark of the beast and the persecution and the martyrdom the big question between kind of like the post-trib and pre-wrath camp is will we be physically on the planet when for example like the locusts come when the water turns to blood you know when there's these giant hailstones and kind of like what will that look like mm -hmm. and that, that's interesting i'm going to definitely research that side a little bit more i didn't really pick up on that side too much when i was researching because honestly i can I can kind of see that making some sense, uh, but before I make a final determination, I wanted wanted to study it more. But it, it definitely seems like when you read it, like you said, in that order, it kind of kind of makes sense. So that's definitely very interesting. Now, one of the controversies around the pre mill view that some people, and this is where I would say a lot of people uh, would have agreement on, even in the post mill side, uh, you know, and the on mill side is they believe that there is a rapture going to happen. But there are some people that will claim that there is no rapture because simply the rapture is never mentioned in the book of Revelation itself, but instead we, we get that from uh, Thessalonians, Paul's letters to Thessalonica, where he talks about being snatched up. And they'll say things such as, you know, oh, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. You have crazy people like... Um, Oh, I cannot remember his name. He's the guy who made the Passion Translation that, you know, there is no second coming. Uh, Brian Simmons. Yeah, Brian Simmons. There you go. You know, he said there is no second coming. There is no rapture. Uh, some videos on that if you want to watch it on YouTube. Uh, so go ahead, if you can, talk a little bit about some of that controversy with the rapture and then why we can be assured that there is going to be a rapture. 
Yeah, so I think the hardest thing with prophecy is like semantics and wording sometimes. And so I think the thing that we hopefully most of us can agree on is that at some point when the Lord returns, it says that basically the dead in Christ will be raised first and that those who are left will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and that our bodies will be transformed into immortal, incorruptible bodies. So basically that's all that's meant by the word rapture. It's just the word harpazo and then they translate there's like Latin and Greek and all these different things that just basically <laughs> like caught up and transformed now where things get you know really interesting and I don't know if we want to go down this bunny trail or not By all is means. some of the more, um I, I don't want to say I don't want to use the l word liberal because people get a little bit offended by that but some other schools of thought would actually say that you know all of those things have already happened that that happened in 70 AD and that it was something Thing that was spiritual so that camp I would see like why they would say that there's no rapture because they tend to see all of it as symbolic for becoming a Christian or coming into the kingdom or God coming in judgments on certain places and they would really allegorize it so much that they don't see like a physical bodily resurrection but I think on the more um, pre-millennial side they're mostly just arguing words and they I think some people take issue with the fact that um, because because we use the word rapture instead of second coming, there's been a lot of positions that would say that they are separate events, and that does kind of bring some confusion into the picture. But kind of how I mentioned earlier, I could see why people would say that because there's different portrayals of the coming of the Lord. So we have to ask ourselves questions like, okay, because we see in Revelation 19 horses, and we see in like, you know, basically Matthew 24, for example, clouds, could it be that one passage just didn't mention one of these realities? Could it be a series of unfolding events that are a part of the second coming? But I think, like, I tend to be a big picture thinker, and I just think, you know, the truth is, is that the Lord's coming back. When he comes, you know, we're going to be raised. We're going to get brand new bodies. We're going to be with the Lord forever. That's what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't know if that answered the question or not. No, no, it does. Uh, and, and you mentioned Matthew 24, which is a very big uh, chapter on eschatology. And I know if you've listened to the previous episode of the, the post-mill side, I know you haven't because I haven't released it yet, but it will be by the time this one comes out. Uh, you, the post-mill side will look at something like Matthew 24. is pretty much all happening at the same time, uh, maybe an exception at the very end. Uh, but the way I've always seen Matthew 24, at least from the pre-mill side, would be uh, understanding that these, these things are happening in, say, a sequential order, but it may not be one right after the other, after the other, after the other. And we see this in the Old Testament a lot, too. There will be a prophecy given about something that happened in the past, and then something that's going to happen in the near future, and then something that's not going to happen all the way until, you know, after Christ, which was, you know, five... 500 years away, 1,000 years away, whichever prophecy you're going to look at. Uh, so there's not necessarily going to be a sequential like, okay, this will happen, and then one month later this is going to happen, and one month later this is going to happen. And that's one way I think a premillennial would read something like Matthew 24, which has a lot of uh, eschatology passages. If, you, if anybody out there hasn't read Matthew 24 when they're studying the end of times, please, by all means, do. It's a very important passage for this. So back on the rapture real quick. We talked about essentially how there's different arguments on when this is going to happen uh, and, and just to elaborate on some of those arguments more. So I know on the dispensational side of the house, they would, they would usually say that Christ comes down to rapture his church in the clouds 
and then they would he would snatch them away, but he doesn't touch down, so it doesn't count as an actual second coming, while a more post-tribulational rapture would be like, no, th there's only one second coming. There's not a second second coming. It's going to be a one-time event, and it kind of happens. And like you said, there's ambiguity there on what, how this actually is going to work out. I know in my mind, I've always kind of pictured it as Christ coming down, we're being snatched up, we're being changed instantly, and then coming right back down with Christ, because in Revelation 19, you, you see that Christ is there with an army dressed in white robes. That, to me, says that's Christians, that's going to be us, that's going to be the newly raptured church at that time. And, I, I, and that's something dispensationals, and that last part, dispensationals and uh, post-rapture guys would probably agree on. Yeah, I want, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually a really key part of the pre-wrath view that I completely forgot to mention. <laughs> so basically, the pre-wrath view has that similarity with the pre-tribulational view and that they do, um, I don't know, they wouldn't say that they're dividing up, um, you know, Revelation 19 from the second coming. They would basically say that the rapture and the second coming is the same event. And then Revelation 19, where he's riding on the white horses and Armageddon would be a separate event. But how they would justify that basically is that, um, you know, toward the end of Matthew 24, it basically says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and then in revelation 6 we see then our 6 15 through 16 we see then the kings of the earth and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the cave and they said to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb and then in matthew 24 we see and he will send forth his angels with the great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other and then in revelation 7 we see after this i saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth and i'll kind of skip down a little bit it talks about basically how the 144,000 are gathered and sealed and then right after that you actually see all of these people in heaven where they would say that those are the raptured saints you basically see a great multitude of people from every nation tribe and tongue basically standing before the throne of god as you look at revelation chapter six and seven so they would kind of see that as a seamless event that basically um the day of the lord happens the sixth seal happens sun and moon is darkened just like it says in matthew 24 you know he gathers his elects through his angels which would include the sealing of the 144,000 on earth and the rapturing of the saints in heaven and then they would say that you see them all standing before the throne and then after that point is when you start seeing the trumpets being blown and the wrath of God being poured out <laughs> so I mean I feel like when they line it up that way I'm like oh I could totally see that so I've done kind of a lot of videos on the pre-wrath rapture position because I'm like I could kind of see that because I do think it kind of reconciles some of of the challenges of like the differences in the picture while at the same time affirming that we will go through the great tribulation but we won't face god's wrath however <laughs> more recently i've been rethinking that all over again because you know when i'm looking at both Daniel and Revelation, it talks about how the beast or the Antichrist makes war on the saints and he's given 42 months to basically 
slay them to kill them and we see this time period of like 42 months or a times times and half a time and all of those different things over and over where it looks like you know the antichrist is persecuting the saints and so part of me is kind of thinking if there's a pre-wrath rapture that happens a little bit before the end of the antichrist reign then who is he continuing to persecute so the pre-wrath rapture position would say you know basically israel is still on earth so they're still facing the antichrist wrath um but i'm not 100 percent sure just because of that if i could be totally sold mm -hmm. on it and so there's like so many layers with rapture stuff <laughs> yeah because it does line up like on the pre-wrath side you know the 144,000. i i you know that that is israel or we see it as Israel, which actually brings up another really good point is, especially on the premillennial as a whole verse, say postmillennial or amillennial, was how you view the nation of Israel and what their role still is. While a postmill side would say essentially, you know, Israel and the church are one, there is no difference, uh, we, are, we are together, there is no separate plan. Uh, while I would argue, you know, from the premill side that th the plan for salvation is the same, there, there's there's Jews who can still believe in Christ, uh, but there is a partial hardening that, that is going on there right now, and God has reserved those 144,000, uh, and not a separate plan for salvation, but just a separate plan overall going on there. Uh, and, and that's kind of the big differences on, on where you see the nation of Israel. And one of the big passages that at least I would look to for that would be Revelation chapter 11. And I believe even Blake mentioned, like, that's kind of like a he wouldn't admit that it was a problem passage but he kind of did in his own you know e-disciple way that, that revelation 11 you know clearly shows that there there is a plan for the nation of israel still like israel is not completely gone and forgotten and just kind of soaked in with the rest of the gentile church uh while they do we are together we are our one church and hopefully i'm not confusing anybody when i talk about it uh but god does have a plan for Israel still on this earth. And, and the very fact that everything that is happening around this time is happening around, centering around the nation of Israel. I don't know, was there anything you wanted to talk about on that? Yeah, I could talk about that for just like days and days because I do think it's so important. And that's one of the challenges that I have with some of these other positions is I believe that they overly separate some of the Old Testament prophetic passages from the New Testament prophetic passages, and they're very quick to say, oh, these things have been fulfilled when they clearly weren't fulfilled. And when they're not fulfilled, they'll either say, oh, it's symbolic or it's an allegory, or they'll say, oh, that's for the church now. But the difficulty in that is there are very specific promises regarding land, and there's very specific pictures all throughout the Old Testament of the Lord, the Messiah, actually reigning on earth from a throne in Jerusalem with, you know, his people. People, and it's just told so often over and over and a lot of little passages there's little hints of it actually all throughout the New Testament like he's telling his disciples that they are going to sit with him on thrones and actually reign and judge the 12 tribes of Israel and even within like you know Luke 21 and Matthew 24 we see these pictures of 
the actual disciples that were Jewish looking for a time of deliverance. They're actually looking for the Messiah to come save and rescue them, which is why I have such a challenge with um, a lot of my preterist brothers and sisters saying that, you know, Jerusalem being destroyed and decimated was the fulfillment of God's Old Testament prophecies and promises, because it was actually the exact opposite. They were destroyed and it was horrible. But if you go back and look at the pattern in the Old Testament, you see over and over, you know, you will be stricken and you will be smitten, but then you'll be restored, then you'll be regathered, then you'll be revived. And so much of the Bible just doesn't make sense when you completely erase all of those Old Testament prophecies. And there's even a lot of really interesting things that we see in the New Testament, like in um, the book of Revelation chapter 11, for example, when it actually talks about this temple, which a lot of people will say is past, it talks about how basically the Gentiles will trample on the city for 42 months. And then you go back and look at Luke 21, and it talks about how basically there is this time of Gentiles that's going to keep happening until its fulfillment. And then you look at Romans 11, and it talks about how at the end of this time of Gentiles that all Israel is going to be saved. And so I just think actually when you take off the presupposition that God has done with Israel, the Bible just comes alive. It explodes with so much meaning. So often when Jesus is talking about his kingdom and all of these really specific realities, then you go back and you look at the Old Testament where it talks about, you know, like the lion laying down with the lamb and a baby putting his hand in the viper's pit and people dying at age 100 and it looking like they were just a little child. Mm -hmm. All of these things seem symbolic suddenly makes so much tangible sense if you do believe in a literal millennium period where Jesus is literally ruling and reigning from earth. And here's the big part, Satan is literally bound. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's such dynamic to this whole position because a lot of our other brothers and sisters would say right now satan is bound can't you tell and it's like well no, and they'll even they'll even concede some of that sometimes like i think blake even talked about like how some will believe that there's like a partial binding which you know we don't really see that in the bible you know or he's bound but he still has influence from where he's at and you know because they got to try to get around that you have to get around that and the, the crux of this is, is that, is really, when was Revelation written? Because that's really going to be the crux of it, is, was it written in the 90, like, because most scholars, most scholars, reputable scholars, will say that it was written somewhere in the 90s, you know, around 94, 95, 96 AD, uh, by John at that time, but the preterist side of the house would say it was written somewhere in the 60s, before the 70 AD destruction, uh, because if it happens after the 70 AD destruction, none of it makes sense anymore. So you have to get around that. Now, I will say the amillennial side does have an argument for that, and I tried reading it, and I really could not understand their argument. Uh, I wish I had the link right now, and I give it to you. Maybe you guys are you know, smarter than me, and you can figure that out. But they, they tried to argue how, how Revelation being written in the 90s isn't a problem for the Amil side, but... We'll save that for when we do the Amil episode. Um, I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was yeah. a definitely an interesting take. Like I said, I couldn't. It was so much biblical gymnastics. I was having a hard time, you know, really keeping up with it. But that's really yeah. one of the big, big, big things is is where was it written? Because if it was written in the '60s, yes, it makes sense on the Preterite side. But if it was written in the '90s, then there's a lot you have to pretty much throw out a lot of those beliefs that you had. And don't get me wrong, I believe the 70 AD destruction, uh, you know, was talked about in prophecy. And that was something that was definitely uh, uh, mentioned that 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 was going to happen. 
but it wasn't the final be all say all because like I one of the things the post mill side will do and this is for anybody who didn't listen to the post mill episode you know one easy thing that a post mill or an on mill person can do is kind of wipe a spiritual brush over a lot of things have a hard time explaining it spiritualism you know it's it's sim- symbology uh it's not literal you know if you can't explain it just say it's symbolism say it's spiritual uh, and, and there you go. That's your answer to everything. When me, I, I want to figure out what this is. You know, when I see these cataclysmic apocalyptic events happening, you know, mountains being removed uh, from their place and flattened islands being swallowed up by the sea, uh, the stars falling out of the sky. I see this as literal events. This is the world being totally reshaped and remade and utterly destroyed uh all in preparation for the new heavens and new earth, not just one specific place in Israel. And I know there's arguments for that side, but I I just, you know, you have to do, like I said, biblical gymnastics to kind of get around that. So... Yeah, absolutely. And I would like add to that too, like even if we found out by some kind of, you know, historian that let's say Revelation was written in like 62 AD, I would still look to the preterist or the partial preterist and say, you're so diligent about finding historical events that align with the 70. <laughs> that is one thing that they are very good at. I will say that. <laughs> Let's say, can you find me historical records of all of the waters on the earth turning to blood? Can you find me historical records of these two witnesses of all of these events? And I know they would say that a lot of it is spiritual, but then I would take them back to the Old Testament. Because my question is always when I have a prophecy question, is there a precedent somewhere else in scripture for this kind of event happening actually? So we would say, yes, the for the most part, all of the preterists I've talked to believe that, you know, water turned to blood in the book of Exodus. If you would ask them about some of the scenes where angels are visible to man, they would say, yep, that's true. If you ask them about passages where the earth opens and swallows people alive, they'd be like, yeah, that's true. So they have no problem with these amazing, apocalyptic, miraculous, however you want to define them, events happening in the Old Testament. But suddenly when you put them in the book of Revelation, they're suddenly spiritual and they suddenly happen metaphorically. And so to me, um, as much as I love my preterist friends, I do feel like they're not being consistent with their hermeneutic or their approach to scripture. They want to super, super, you know, get the magnifying glass out on words like soon or suddenly or at hand, (laughs) um, but then take metaphorically hundreds of events throughout the Bible. And I'm like, no, you can't have it both ways. If your explanation to deal with these words ends up wiping out 80% of Bible prophecy and spiritualizing it, then there's actually a problem with the interpretation. So Mm -hmm. that's just my little spiel on that. And you did mention, and I've We've said this throughout all the episodes we've been doing this on, and I just want to highlight it once again, since we didn't say it in the beginning. Uh, She said, you know, our preterist friends, because at the end of the day, this is an in-house debate. I don't want people to think that this is a uh, salvific issue that has nothing to do with, uh, uh, you know, the study of Christ, the study of salvation. This is what we would call a secondary or tertiary issue, because it doesn't deal with that. These are these are friends, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are not to be looked at, you know, a different way. I might have some things to say about a full-blown hyper-preterist, but well, I'll save that once again. You can you can listen to the other episode on post-mill stuff if you want to hear more about it, but that I just wanted to highlight that and make that permanent. So 
let's go ahead and start looking around the millennium time frame because this is where a lot of the arguments really lie. Like there's a lot of sub arguments, but a lot of this focuses around the millennium. Hence, that's why we get the name pre-millennial and post-millennial and amillennial. Uh, you know, so you, we talked about Revelation 19. If you're not familiar, that is where Jesus is coming back. He's on his white horse. Some people will say he's got a tattoo down the side of his leg, you know, <laughs> um, but he, he's coming back and he's pretty much going to go ahead and put an end to Satan and bind him uh, so he cannot no longer, uh, you know, kind of influence the world. And then we get into Revelation chapter 20, where we see Satan actually being bound and then we have a 1,000-year reign of Christ. And that 1,000 years is always seeming to be a point of controversy because an amill or a post-mill will say that is a spiritual 1,000 years, not a literal. Uh, me personally, or all pre-mills would, would say that, no, 1,000 years means 1,000 years. You don't mention it this many times without actually being literal about it. Uh, and, and we do see other times in the Bible where numbers are thrown out, and they do have a symbolic meaning, but a thousand years. This is very specific, uh, especially with the amount of times that it's mentioned and the context that it's mentioned. So essentially in the millennium, if, if, if anybody's curious, once, once Satan is bound, Jesus sets up his kingdom in Israel for a literal 1,000 years where there's going to be prosperity, there is going to be uh, long life, like you mentioned. You said people... That, that I can't remember the Old Testament passage. Go ahead, and throw it out if you if you remember. But you know that people will live to the age of 100, and if they die at that time, they're they're going to be looked at like, what did they do wrong to die at 100? Like that's going to be a. It's almost going to be like what it was back before uh, God essentially said, "Hey, I'm not going to put up with you longer than 120 years." Uh, it, it it it's going to be almost like it was back then, back in the days of Noah, pre-flood, people living long lives. That's what I, I kind of see there. And personally, from the science behind that, I see that because the world was being remade through all that wrath that was being poured out on the world at that time. That's one way that I kind of see it. Uh, but go ahead and talk about the millennium a little bit more. I know I talked a bunch about it, but I know you can you can expound on what I said there a little more. Sure, I can just give kind of like a really basic skeleton view of the scriptural precedent that people are getting these ideas from. So we have verses like Zechariah 14, 9, and it says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, we hear, If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. We have 1 Corinthians 6.2 that says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then we also see even in the Old Testament verses in Daniel 7.18, it says, but in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. Or we see Daniel 7.27, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the 
kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. So just with these different things, we're seeing this idea of Jesus literally reigning on earth, but this amazing reality that we can't even comprehend that the saints, that means us and the saved people of Israel, will literally be reigning with him. And just some of the fun verses, um, Isaiah 65, 25, it says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. Or we have one of our kind of famous Christmas verses that we don't always think too much about. It says Isaiah 9, 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And I could go on and on, but I'll just do one more. Um, Isaiah 2, 4, the Lord will mediate between all nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. So we see this really fascinating reality that's not quite the new heavens and the new earth that's eternal because we see that man is still dying. We also see that there's still governments and nations. There's still, you know, basically reconciliation and all of these things, all of this ruling and reigning that needs to happen. But there's this partnership between Jesus ruling on his throne with his saints ruling this kingdom where the creation laws are different, lions and lambs are hanging out, you know, like you said, people are living a really long time. Um, but there's also this um, really difficult reality where at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and he actually goes forth to deceive the nations and he rallies this massive amount of people that actually come against God and his holy people. So that's showing us right there that this is not quite <laughs> what we would tend to call heaven because there are people with a sinful nature that can still fall, that can still rebel, and that's not quite heaven. So that's where premillennial people would see this, I don't want to call it an interim phase, but this interesting period of time that's definitely not where we're living now because we definitely don't have peace and long life and all of these things now, but it's not quite heaven. There are sinners here. There is some form of death here, and there is still a need for Jesus to rule with an iron rod. And yeah, I, I feel like I've talked a lot so i'll pause no no you're 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 fine and that that was you you brought up a, a few good points especially when it comes to the hard times that some people would have explaining that how can satan be released at the end of this 1000 years and still go out and deceive people christ has been reigning for a thousand years you got one person reigning he's clearly reigning uh, and I feel like this is not going to be something that people just don't know about. They're going to know about this. They're going to see it. All this stuff happened. This is going to be recorded in the history books. And then Satan gets released and still ends up deceiving. Now, me personally, I, I don't know where you stand on this, so I'm not trying to throw any offense out there. You know, I, I, I do have a tend to have a little bit more of a reform view when it comes to salvation. So I can understand how you know, some wicked hearts are just going to be so hardened to the point where they're not going to believe, no matter how much evidence is thrown in their face. Uh, so I can see that personally happening. But I know someone who, uh, how do I put this, maybe in a more Arminian type view uh, of salvation, they, they would look at this like, how though? Like you literally have Christ here, reigning for a thousand years, he's not dying, so you know he's Christ, uh, and prosperity's on the earth. How is Satan going to deceive the nations to come about it? And obviously that's something that we read in between the lines on, because it's not specifically mentioned, but just know that 
there will be a time where Satan gets released and gathers this massive army to come against Jerusalem, and then God destroys them all with fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I heard a really fascinating perspective on this, because I've always kind of wondered, like, A, why in the world would you release Satan when things are going so good? <laughs> but B, like you said, like, how are these people going to get deceived? But I forget which minister I was listening to that said it, but he basically illustrated the point that this happens before the final judgment, like the second resurrection, where all of these people are thrown into the Absolutely, lake of fire. Absolutely, it does, if you and follow so it sequentially, yes. Yeah, and so he was kind of basically saying that this is going to be the final proof, whether it's to angels or humanity or the, you know, galaxies, that this is the need for this eternal judgment because all arguments are suspended. You can't just say, oh, you know, it was the devil because there's going to be this huge period of time where the devil is not deceiving. You can't say, oh, well, if you just had this utopian situation, like man would just naturally turn into God because they had this utopian situation under the rulership of Jesus and they still didn't turn to God. And so um, kind of going from a total depravity lens, some people would say that this is the final illustration of what total depravity really is. And the fact that, you know, basically without the supernatural intervention of God, man is so wicked, his heart is so wicked, his flesh is so wicked, that even in these perfect conditions, how quickly he would turn, you know, without the grace of God. So not that that, you know, answers all questions, but I thought that it gave me a lot of food for thought, like, okay, like maybe. Yeah, you, you and I can see that because you even see a little bit of that today. So say, you know, Christ is ruling. He's essentially established the government, uh, just like today, how government, while it's ran by imperfect people uh, who are very sinful, probably not even Christian, depending on what country you're in, uh, you're, the government is still restraining evil, just kind of like Romans 13 talks about. You know, the government is still restraining evil. People may want to go out and steal something, murder somebody, do something, but they're not doing it because of the government. Instead, that's just kind of staying hidden inside these people's hearts. So you can kind of see it, I guess, from that angle. Uh, since we're kind of on some problem issues, I guess, with premillennialism, if you want to call it problems or things that are hard to explain, I would say, that's a better way of saying it, things that are hard to explain. One of the biggest issues that like, I see when I'm studying this would be the reinstitution of sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Like, and this is one of the strengths that the, the post-mill side or the amill side would have. Like, what, what, what's the point of that? Christ was the final sacrifice. Why do we need to reinstitute sacrifices? But yet we see passages in, I'm looking at now, you know, Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah, and especially in Ezekiel 43, uh, talking about these sacrifices that are going to be reintroduced during the millennial kingdom. Uh, and while I haven't gone into an in-depth study on reasons why, you know, it's all kind of speculation, what, what's some light that you might have to shed on that? Yeah, that is such a huge issue. And I'll let you know kind of how initially I approached it. And then I'll tell you some of the explanations that I've heard. So I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've ever felt a little bad for the Pharisees initially <laughs> reading the New Testament, because they were going by what they had been told, like God had given them this holy law, and he had given them all of these institutions and all of these commandments. And then Jesus came and seemed to violate and turn on its head everything that he had taught them. And they just in their mind, they were so so like frozen and stuck because they're like they were so God, indoctrinated yeah 
Yeah, they're like, you're breaking the rules. You can't do that, God. And, you know, God, of course, you know, he says, I think it's in Isaiah 55 that my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so there's this odd reality sometimes that we see these things in scripture. And even, you know, as we're living where we're like, God, this hurts my mind. It doesn't make sense to me. It actually even seems wrong in my sentiments. But there is kind of a childlike humility that we have to have sometimes where we kind of realize, you you know what I don't understand now but I will understand then and the temptation I think we have um, as humans and especially very uh, rational and logical humans is to like explain away certain things in the Bible because it's offensive or it doesn't make sense or you know we can basically end up drawing conclusions that the text doesn't actually say and that's so the, the entire point of my time. podcast here I just wanted to throw in is you know not going away from those hard to explain things but tackling and admitting like th this is kind of hard to explain but i trust god throughout the entire process like you said his Absolutely. ways are not our ways yeah, absolutely. And so I will 100%, you know, agree. There's been so many things, especially coming from like John Hagee's like cornerstone view of prophecy all the way to where I am now. Every step all of the, the way, books. I was, hey, oh but that's God. wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Because just everything that I had been taught, it was contradicting all of it. But then I read what was in the actual Bible and I had to bend myself to the word, not, you know, bend the word to my preconceived Amen. doctrine. So, Amen. And that's just yeah, that's I, Bible reading 101. That that it's yeah. literally what it is. Bible reading 101. And that's one of the common prayers. I don't say it all the time. I need to remember to always say it, but you know, when before I read the Bible, you know, I pray to God to take any preconceived notions that I've built in my head away and let me see your word for what it clearly says. And that's I, I think that's a good practice. Yeah, for sure. And so that would be like my uh, original helmet that I have on as I look at these things, because I 100% agree. The idea of reinstating sacrifices is abominable because we all know that Jesus is our final sacrifice. We all know what Hebrews says. We all know the New Testament. <laughs> so this idea even of a modern temple being built, let alone a millennial temple being built, is very offensive. I acknowledge and I admit it. It's like, what on earth? Why? So many questions. Um, but I think the millennial one is even more difficult because at least with the um, modern day one being re rebuilt we can say well obviously they're not christians they're still in the jewish system of thinking they're still awaiting a messiah so we understand why they would build a temple and offer sacrifices but when you get to the millennium it's like wait a second like jesus is reigning again what's going on so i would i just definitely want to acknowledge that tension first and foremost there are some things that I've heard that have attempted to explain it, but they're just that, they're attempts to explain because we're missing so much information about the millennium. But one thing that I've heard people say, the most common, you know, in answer would be that it's memorial in the same way that we take communion, that we remember, that we see all of these tangible realities, and we are reminded of the sacrifice. The um, more controversial one <laughs> that I've heard is this idea, and this is going to get deep, where we're wading into deep waters here. There's this idea that the glory of God is connected in some way with this new Jerusalem, this reality where in some way heaven is somehow supernaturally intersecting with earth. So just how in the Old Testament, you know, priests couldn't just go into the Holy of Holies, you know, they had to have all of these purification rituals done mm -hmm. in order to be in this type of presence with God. So I've heard some people suggest that when the kings of the earth that may or may not at certain points be quote unquote saved, 
when they come into the New Jerusalem and they have these interactions in the temple and in some way intersect with God's holiness or glory, and that God is going to kind of re-sort of set up this system of purification so that they're not like struck dead and like burst into flames. That, now, that is that a very uh, progressive or different view, I guess, that, that I have not heard before. I don't, I, I could yeah. probably say... I don't agree with that one, but I'm I'm probably closer to what you originally said. Uh, I, I will read real quick. This is uh, I've I've mentioned this resource many times before, especially for for newer Christians, and I still use it today. I've been a Christian for a while, and I still use this. It's a great resource. GotQuestions.org. Uh, they actually wrote on this topic, and this is what they had to say, just summarized at the very end. You know, the, they said most premillennial scholars will agree that the purpose of animal sacrifice during the millennial kingdom is, like you said, immemorial in nature. Uh, as the Lord's Supper is a reminder of death uh, of Christ in the church today, animal sacrifices will be a reminder during the millennial kingdom. To those born during the millennial kingdom, animal sacrifices will again be an object lesson. Uh, during that future time, righteousness and holiness will prevail, but those with earthly bodies will still have a sin nature, and there will need to be uh, there will be a need to teach about how offensive sin is to a holy and righteous God. Animal psych- sacrifices will serve that purpose, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, taken from Hebrews ten three. So that's what they had to say on it. Pretty much summarizes what you first said. Uh, in there, that's the safe one to go with until we have more information in the millennium. <laughs> exactly, like, and you know, I always go. You can always go to the Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. You know, the secret things belong to the Lord, because uh, there are things, and this is something that, uh, especially if you're a new Christian, that you do need to understand. There are things in the Bible that we just can't explain because God didn't want to explain it. I, I've often tell uh, newer Christians this, or when I'm talking to somebody who doesn't believe, you know, the Bible is not. A book that has everything that there is to know. It only has everything that we need to know. Uh, yeah. You know th- that that's that's essentially the way that you have to look at that when you're when you're looking at the Bible. I mean, ex- great example is found in Revelation, uh, where where the angel was straddling the sea and the land, and then John's re- getting ready to write down what was going on, and God goes, "Oh, no, don't write that down." Go ahead, write that, take, crumple that paper up and eat it. <laughs> you know, we don't know what was going to happen there. And they're, they're all the, the prophecy videos of somebody who said they've figured out what the, the, the those seven different thunders. things are. What was it? Was it the seven bowls? Seven thunders. Oh, the seven thunders. That was it. The seven thunders. Thank you. Yeah, there's so many. You can go on YouTube and I highly suggest don't watch them because nobody knows what they are. They'll say, I figured out what the seven thunders are. Like, no, you haven't. <laughs> no, you haven't. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the temptation, and I think we all take this temptation, but the temptations for uh, people that want to shoot down premillennialism is to take the literally like the hardest, most mysterious, most unexplained things to basically like throw the whole thing in the trash can. When truthfully, I kind of I like the interpretation like if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. But I also like the analogy that prophecy is like a puzzle, and we're missing a lot of pieces. So our 
desire and our goal is to put as many pieces together and where there's gaps or mysteries, just let them be there. So in my opinion, when you take, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament and all the prophecies and synthesize them, I see a perfect stream going from Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, Daniel 7 through 12, Revelation 13. It's like they keep talking about the same events over and over, the same time periods over and over. And even though they might use different names for the Antichrist, like one might call him the son of perdition, another a beast, another an Antichrist, all of these different things, they're describing these same events over and over. And it really does gel quite well. We can get a really good picture, but there's definitely things that are missing. And so I would just encourage everybody that's interested in prophecy to really do your best to look at all the puzzle pieces, see what goes together, and be careful to not dismantle an entire position because of mysteries that no one can quite explain yet. Mm -hmm. and, and like you said, I think you 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 talked about it really well when you mentioned how to view prophecy. You know, like if, if the plain reading makes sense, then leave it as it is. There's no reason to, to do anything else to it. You don't need to wipe the spiritual brush over it and uh, say that, but if the plain reading makes sense, but like you said, there, there are pieces of the puzzle that maybe are still missing, and that was intended by God for a reason. We, we talked about, I just lost my train of thought now again, <laughs> but it, 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 overall that, that was, that, that was very key. Oh, I remember now what I was going to say. And, and it was, you got to remember who was writing Revelation. It was John. You know, John was writing it, and right in the very beginning, in the, in the, I believe it was the first chapter, what does the angel tell John? He says, write down the things that you see. And this is usually one of my arguments for the post-mill and uh, amill people, is he was told to write down the things that he sees. It wasn't write down, look at the things you see and make some weird analogy for it, like write down what you see. And there's a very real sense that John was looking at some stuff, that he had no idea how to explain. So he was using the terminology of the time to try to explain it. And we've heard all the different stuff, you know, locusts with scorpion tails running around and, you know, persecuting uh, people and stinging them. And do you read that literal or do you see that as like, oh, that kind of could be like an Apache helicopter? I don't know. You know, uh, who, who knows on that? But at the end of the day, you got to go back to what was told to John, write down what you see, not your spiritualized version of it. You know, if, if, if what he saw was the 70 AD destruction, I don't see the need to use all this symbology, especially from someone like John, who was known for being very plain in his writing. I always tell new Christians, read first John. Like usually I tell them to read John and then I tell them read first John afterwards because it's just so easy to understand. You know, first John's Christianity 101. There's no big fancy terminology in there. It's just easy to understand. So I have a hard time picturing John all of a sudden going from this very plain writing style to a very cryptic symbolic uh, writing style where he's being very poetic with his language and all these different things. I think he was literally writing what he saw and he had no other way to explain it. I don't yeah, know if you want to elaborate. Absolutely. I think it's so cool reading the book of Daniel. That's been something that I've more um, been kind of new to, to the study of Daniel, but it's so crazy. The prophecies um, were so exact that scholars literally thought that Daniel wrote it after the fact and described history. And they literally discredit the book of Daniel because some of, you know, the prophecies about like Alexander the Great and Antiochus and all of these details, there's like Queens of the North and like all these people. It's so specific that they literally say, 
Daniel couldn't have wrote that. It's too specific. And it's so interesting, too, reading the book of Daniel. He's reading the book of Jeremiah, and he figures out from Jeremiah that the 70-year captivity is about to end. And so there's this element of prophecy that does have, you know, some of this uh, metaphorical language, but there's also a very tangible, very clear aspect to prophecy that is extremely, like, right on the money, right, like, really direct. And I think something that is a little challenging is uh, basically the Bible kind of talks about how sometimes parables are hidden from certain people on purpose. And I think there's a real I mean, Jesus danger mentioned from- that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it even says it's crazy. Like in the book of Daniel, it says the wise will understand, but the wicked will never understand. And so there's this really interesting reality um, of how through the Holy Spirit, some of these things, um, can be so clear and so simple, but if we're approaching it with a rationalistic mindset or with preconceived notions that we're trying to put on top of the text, then suddenly none of it makes sense. And so that's not to um, to be difficult on my other brothers and sisters in Christ, but we just have to be so careful about taking systematic approaches to scripture and plopping them on top of books like yes, Daniel. Yes, we and cannot I- read scripture through our systematic theology. We have to let scripture to write our systematic theology. Exactly, and that's the problem. I would say if I had to pick the number one challenge that I feel like um, preterist in that camp is having with Scripture is that they do not see, for whatever reason, this amazing reality that there are near-far applications to prophecy. Oh, yes. The prophet writes something, and it partially was, you know, fulfilled for that generation, but then there's an eschatological fulfillment way in the future, like the day of the Lord. And for whatever reason, like they will not accept that. So then all of a sudden, when you look at Daniel, they're saying, oh, that can't possibly be also, you know, talking about the Antichrist, even though all of the names and the descriptions and even the months are literally mirrored in the book of Revelation, they'll say like, no, (laughs) that's about something else. Or you look at Matthew 24, and literally they're asking him multiple questions about the destruction of the temple, but also, you know, what's the sign of the end of the age and your coming? And they can't seem to accept the fact that it's possible that there's a near-far application. 70 AD was definitely an application, but there's this greater, you know, reality of the fulfillment that's coming in the future and that's where this event of the abomination of desolation is so important because to me that is the sign that jesus is really pointing to you know when you see the abomination when you see this unholy can can you can you define that for anybody who's not uh familiar with that because that is very key Absolutely. So we have about eight references in scripture to the abomination of desolation. So we have Matthew 24, 15. It says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So to define what the abomination of desolation is, it's the concept of an idol being placed in the holies of holies. Some people would also say that it could a person can even be an about an embodiment of the abomination as in but, the antichrist or something like that uh-huh. yeah exactly and it's really interesting because we have a ton of references in the book of daniel to this you know abomination that causes desolation and depending on your translation it words it differently but it's the same thing over and over again you know it talks about for example it says um daniel 11 
31, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Then we have the famous hotly disputed Daniel 9:27, and we, um, well, futurists basically believe that this is talking about the antichrist then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week which is a seven-year period but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even into the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate this is not an easy translation Um, but basically what we're seeing over and over again is that there's this seven-year time period and at the middle we have this event called the abomination of desolation and Second Thessalonians 2 describes it really well. It basically says, um, verses 2, 3 through 4, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, we believe that's the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And then further connecting to that, we have Revelation 13, where it talks about the beast, and basically he has has this image of the beast that he's forcing people to worship and all of when you put it all together all of the things seem to point to this time period at the middle of the final seven years where the antichrist stands in the temple declares that he's god and puts up some kind of image in the rebuilt temple and and he's requiring people to worship it and so i really believe strongly that matthew 24 is pointing to a future fulfillment of this because of all of these different verses because then when you get into the book of revelation you see how the mark of the beast is connected you know how it's connected where they have to buy or sell they have to have this mark and all of these things come together and we're seeing this picture of this man whether you want to call him the antichrist the beast the son of perdition the man of sin lots of different names but there's this man that basically declares that he's god forces people to worship them and he has this system with this coalition of 10 kings where they're essentially kind of having a new world order of sorts where they are enforcing this whole mark of the beast worship system and so basically um, we're told over and over that the time of the great tribulation is three and a half years sometimes they call it 42 months there's different variations in the language but this is basically where the antichrist is ruling he's enforcing the mark of the beast and that this is where this huge persecution breaks out where anybody that won't receive the mark of the beast is either imprisoned or killed and that's why jesus is warning over and over again you know there's going to be false christ false messiahs and a lot of false signs and wonders and that's the part for me also that's really missing from 70 ad basically we're told like over and over revelations 13 13 he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men we see revelation 19 20 and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image and basically second thessalonians 2 9 says the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how satan works he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and so i've never heard of any records in like 70 a.d of all of these miracles that were so overwhelming that people were literally worshiping somebody and so that's where i come back to the principle circle back to the principle of this near far application we see it in daniel we see it throughout all of the prophets isaiah jeremiah zephaniah and we're definitely seeing it in my opinion in matthew 24 it meant something serious to the people of that time but it was foreshadowing a greater and final fulfillment yep that 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 was awesome uh 
really like I'm kind of blown away right now. That was really awesome. It, it, and it speaks to once again, like you said, the whole near far thing and then looking at things. There's some things that you just can't wipe away with the spiritual brush. Uh, and and you, you talked about a few of them. One of them, as I've always said, would would be that beast, you know, the Antichrist and that fatal wound he gets. And then the false prophet creates this image of the beast and somehow either through demon possession or mechanical robotic ventriloquism or something, you know, whatever the case may be, I don't know, uh, you know, makes this thing come to life and people are are worshiping that. Like, I, I can't explain that away as saying, like, this is this is a picture of the Roman Empire and Caesar and, you know, things like that. Like, you, you have to use a very broad brush to struck o- strike over something that specific. And especially, you mentioned it earlier, the two prophet or the two witnesses. If you don't know who the two witnesses are, they're essentially these two people that are sent down, and they're going to be evangelizing. If anybody tries to come against these people, they, they're going to open their mouth, Fire is going to come out. You know, they're going to destroy their memories. They got the ability to control the weather. Uh, we don't know who these two witnesses are. There's lots of speculation on who it is. You know, I've often said if if God's taking volunteers, I'll, I'll be one. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. But eventually these two witnesses will be killed uh, in Jerusalem. They're going to be killed and their bodies are going to lay there for three days. And as they lay there for three days, the entire world is going to see them. How is the entire world supposed to see them if this was referring to the 70 AD destruction? That wasn't possible then. Today, though, through the internet, through television, through social media, everybody, you know, at least in first world countries, I don't want to sound insensitive, but, you know, has a cell phone, has some type of internet connection. There's going to be a way for everybody to see this. And I truly believe that. And then they're going to be resurrected, come back to life, and then pretty much caught back up. Like there's, you can't just explain that away. That is very specific imagery. It's not, you know, very ambiguous ambiguous style, you know, prophecy that is very, very specific. And I don't know how you can kind of get around things like that. Absolutely. I agree so much. And to me, that's um, where the danger comes in with a lot of these things. And I personally know one person and I've heard of a few people that they started, in my opinion, on the slippery slope of some of these other philosophies. And it started with partial preterism, then it went to full preterism, then they gave up on the faith altogether because there's a very real threat to scripture honestly when you start allegorizing and I actually heard a really cool like parable <laughs> to go with this and I'll see if I can uh, tell it again so there's this guy that basically has a pumpkin patch but he's got like pesky little neighbors that keep stealing his pumpkins so finally he thinks oh I have the idea I'm gonna poison one of them and I'm gonna put up a sign to the pesky little neighborhood kids and say one of these are poison steal at your own risk And so he wakes up the next morning and he's like, okay, it's going to be a good day. The kids are going to leave my pumpkins alone. But then he sees another sign that says, now two are poison. You eat at your own risk. And the idea is that once you call into question and allegorize so deeply passages of scripture, now all passages are called into question. Well, did Jesus really mean that we get eternal life? Did he really rise from the dead? And then I think we've seen this with some scholars. I don't know if it's bad to name names, so I won't, but it's like they 
they started out on oh, that's a really, fine if like, you want to narrow path. yeah and then now they are going so far off the deep end because they started with this danger of over spiritualizing and allegorizing to the point where how can you in good conscience you know believe anything in the bible if anything can be so kind of spiritualized and that's kind of within the preterist camp their own debate a lot of full preterists will say that they are not being like intellectually honest so to speak because they're not really applying that same hermeneutic to all passages they're saying oh yeah the you know returning in 70 AD was spiritual the first resurrection of Thessalonians was spiritual but there's actually going to be a real literal return of Christ and the full preterist would come and say well why why how can you say that now if you spiritualize first Thessalonians it's like you're picking and choosing what what what's going to be true and what's not and what you're spiritualizing and and Absolutely. you bring up an amazing fact that it is true because i have talked to people before that have gone that route where they've left christianity because they started doing exactly what you said they started kind of wiping that spiritual brush oh the bible doesn't actually mean what it says at this point in time and they that slippery slope you mentioned and now they're not even in the faith anymore i've seen it in that i've seen it happen with the uh this emerging Torah observant movement that you see out there. I've seen that turn from questioning the Bible on what it really says, you know, starting with an earnest, I want to follow what God wants me to do and turning into a, we have to follow the law. Oh, now I'm not going to be Christian. I'm going to be Jewish. And then all of a sudden leaving the faith altogether. You know, it, it, it happens when you start questioning what the Bible actually says, instead of either one admitting you just don't understand it or two uh, accepting it for what it is. And that's always my case. Like, I'm never shocked by anything that I see in the Bible. And I know that may sound like crazy to some people because I read these Bible, like my wife's Bible study, you know, like, did this passage shock you? You know, I'm like, no, it didn't shock me because it's in the Bible. I believe it true. Call that blind faith or whatever the fact may be. But his spirit testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God and everything written inside that book, I'm not going to question it. I may go, huh, I don't really understand it, but you know what? It's true. It says it. So it's got to be true. And that's kind of the, I went on a little side rant there that didn't have to do with eschatology, but it was a good point to bring up uh, the slippery slope that you mentioned. I'm totally with you. I just love analogy. So another funny one is like the 80-20 rule. <laughs> so the idea is that 80% of the Bible is really clear and it makes a lot of sense, but there might be about 20% kind of murky and unclear, but the error people make is in order to make the 20% clear, they create this rule that now invalidates the 80%. So it's like they traded the 80 for the 20. I'd rather keep my 80% that makes perfect sense and let the 20% be a mystery because at the end of the day, you know, we can get in really dangerous waters. And that's ultimately why I feel so passionate about prophecy, because I do believe that, you know, although there's dangers and like getting overly zealous and like looking for signs, trying to predict the end, there are so many things that have happened, even like you just mentioned, you know, with technology and satellites and the internet and our ability to see all of these different things happening, the reestablishment of Israel, even like the depths of wickedness and things that are being, you know, accepted. So many things that the Bible talks about appears to be happening. And so my biggest concern for my brothers and sisters and some of these other camps is they're literally saying Satan is bound. You don't need to resist him anymore. They're literally saying the great apostasy has already happened. The 
deceptions and the false prophets that are warned about, that already happened. And in many ways, to me, they're doing what Jesus literally says not to do. He basically says that there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be deceptions, especially as we get closer to the end. And I want to say in Timothy, it actually even talks about doctrines of demons. (laughs) That's hardcore. And so it's like, you know what, demons are theologians too. And I strongly They can read the Bible just like we can, I'm sure. Yeah, and especially as we get to the end, and I think especially on the issue of prophecy, how much does Satan want to muddy the waters? If there is this kind of like cosmic battle between the angels and Daniel, where, you know, Angel Gabriel was resisted from even giving the prophecy to Daniel, how much and how angry is Satan that he doesn't want these truths to be known, whether it's about Israel or warning about the end times or knowing the signs of his coming? To me, some of these you know, doctrines that are getting so popularized that wipes all of that away. To me, that's just like another fulfillment of Jesus's warning and prophecies. And so that's why I would really just encourage people to be so careful because there are so many like smart, articulate, cool people right now on the internet and in the body of Christ that if you just listen to them without the proper lens of scripture or without knowing scripture, they are so convincing and they sound so right. Oh, they'll make a very Um, convincing case if you just listen to them in that context. You're 100% right. I I was doing a very big study of refuting uh, the Torah observant movement. I don't know how you feel about that, but I was uh, in watching their video, because this is what I like to do when I want to study something. I watch what they say. And Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie, like if you sat there and watched their isolated view of everything, oh my gosh, it makes so much sense until you actually open your Bible and read. And then, you know, that kind of gets blown away because you have to start using circular reasoning to justify some of the things that they were saying, but that that's, that's a really good point. And you, you, you mentioned something and I want to highlight, highlight it because it's, it is something that I think, uh, because let's, let's face it, premillennialism for some reason, it's still the most popular view from all the research that I've done, uh, and still the most highly, uh, held view, but it has declined over the years, uh, from what we see, Pew Research did a study on it and a few others have, uh, where it is slowly declining. And from one of the reasons why I think is because of the media, like you mentioned, that gets pushed out. And you, you can go you can go on YouTube and just type in something about prophecy and you will see someone on there overanalyzing every little event that has ever happened. Like right now, if you're listening to this in the future, there's a giant uh, sad war going on in between Russia and Ukraine. And there have already been hundreds of videos made now on how this is pointing to some prophetic sign. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say that it's not, but I'm not going to go sit around looking saying, oh, this is this and this is that. It's like prophecy watchers. That's what I call them, you know, prophecy watchers. They're constantly every little thing and then they shove it in your face on how it is, and they make these convincing arguments, but at the same time, it's, you know, not in the Bible. Like, we only really know if whatever event is happening is prophecy until it's already done. For an example, you mentioned the reestablishing of the nation of Israel. That That is something that I don't know how anybody could ever deny, that the very fact that the nation of Israel is around again after 100,000 years of being totally gone, not a thing. Uh, Look at every single tribe back in those days. We don't see Canaanites anymore. We don't see Amalekites. We don't see all these different groups. The Israelites still 
around. And no, they don't have all their uh, tribal records anymore because that was destroyed in the 70 AD destruction. But you still have a nation of Israel that has been reestablished. And that, that's why you see so many of those, like I talked about, prophecy watchers. They'll make YouTubes on, on oh, the temple is going to get ready at this time and be remade at this time. And, oh, the, they'll even try to find ways around. Like, the Temple Mount wasn't the actual site. It's over here, so we should build it here. And, you know, they're trying to, like, almost usher in, which actually kind of feeds into some of the post-mill view. If you didn't listen to the post-mill view side, uh, we essentially talked about how that is the optimistic view. You know, they, they always are trying to look at things in an optimistic light, as in the world is going to be evangelized more and more and more and more, and the world is going to become more and more Christian. And almost like if you take it to the hyper-charismatic side, you're establishing the conditions for Christ's return. Um, and that's, I kind of wanted to highlight that difference, because the pre-mill side is more of the depressing side, of where, no, the world is going to get worse. You know, like you talked about the great apostasy, the great falling away, that the world is going to fall away. And and I get it. We see at... Sorry, I had a text message pop up. I, we, we do see uh, the very fact that are there more Christians than when, you know, the gospel first got established? Absolutely. So we do see the advancing of Christ's kingdom in that light. And I can concede that, and I'm glad to concede that. But at the same time, the world in its moralistic view, it's almost like it went through like a little bit of an uptick, but then it's slowly going back downhill. And you need look no further than the country that you and I are in right now in America, the laws that are being passed. And that's really reflective of a lot of other places in the world. Uh, essentially, everything is moving towards a very anti-Christian stance. It always has been, but now they're just being vocal about it. And you see this yeah. infecting the church. You see that churches popping up that can really be called into question whether or not they are actually a church. You talked about the doctrine of demons. What's the easiest way for Satan to try to disrupt what's going on in God's kingdom? Create false religion. And not just any false religion, false Christianity at that. Because it's easy to go ahead and look at something that's not a Christian and say, oh, that's wrong. But when you start disguising yourself as a Christian and teaching, mixing the truth with a little bit of error, that's the most dangerous. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's it's interesting because um, I listen to so many different Bible teachers from so many different streams. And a lot of times it's hard even for me because I listen to like a lot of pre-trip teachers, for example, even though I really disagree with them on the rapture. And I'm like, how are all of these awesome, amazing teachers teaching the wrong thing? But then I thought to myself, deception wouldn't be deceptive if it didn't seem like it was true. And I think that that's what Jesus is warning us about. Cause I think when we picture, you know, apostasy and like this great falling away, we picture, you know, Satan is infiltrating churches, which of course, you know, that kind of stuff happens too, but maybe we should be keeping our eyes open to the really smart, really intelligent, really, you know, great people that are teaching these wrong doctrines. And I always want to like distinguish between like false teaching and a false teacher. Yes. Because that, there that, can be yes. a really yeah, awesome, like man or woman of God that is teaching false teaching and they're still in the fold. Um, but I think that as we, you know, get closer and closer to Jesus' return, the lines are going to blur a lot more. And that is something that I've honestly been really surprised about because my traditions, I have two main ones that are really random. I have a really strong Calvinist foundation, but a really strong Pentecostal foundation, and they blended into some interesting... That is a very interesting mix, but... <laughs> 
Absolutely. And so it's so funny because um, I listen to a lot of charismatic teachers that I don't agree with on a lot of things, but I have been shocked that such a huge number of like Pentecostals and charismatics that have been traditionally very pre-millennial are going to post-millennialism, you know, a lot of the preterism, a lot of these things that is like so opposite of like their historic roots and so it just i just see a really interesting thing happen you know we have really strong reformed people that are buying into like a lot of preterism amillennialism postmillennialism <laughs> but also we have some like really strong like charismatics and different all these streams that are buying into so many things that's basically saying the tribulation's over no mark of the beast, no antichrist, things are going to get better and better. So my concern is what happens when the antichrist comes. In the beginning, he looks like a man of peace. He looks like he's uniting things. He's even coming at a certain point with signs, wonders, and miracles for the charismatic brethren. You know, and I think a lot of people are going to be like, okay, this is our post-millennialism realized. We're getting peace on earth. We're getting miracles. We're getting unity. Wow. We're getting all of these things. And then boom, you know, they fall for the antichrist and then for like my very cynical kind of somewhat other camp that's not over there i mean it says there's going to be a great deception and a great falling away for a reason and i'm just concerned that some of these doctrines in multiple streams are going to like take out swaths of people all over the place so that's like another reason why i'm just passionate about it because the worst thing, if I'm wrong, that maybe people were looking out too much for, like, signs of the end. But if the post mills and, you know, the preterists are wrong, they're literally going counter to what Jesus said to do, to look for, and to watch for. And on top of that, with the Israel issue, you know, the Bible says a lot about, like, you know, if you touch Israel, you're touching the apple of my eye. And a lot about, like, blessings and curses and things. So I don't want to, like, take that to the extreme. But I wouldn't want to be on the team that's coming against God's people and coming against God's warnings and saying Jesus already came when he didn't. I mean, I think that prophecy is so fun and it can be a really mental exercise, but I think there's a real gravity and a real weight to it that <laughs> it should compel us at the very, um, at a bare minimum to really make sure we're correct, to really keep going back to God, opening our heart and saying, Lord, if I'm wrong, please show me because these issues are so weighty. We don't want to be on the wrong side of that in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And you're at, you're spot on. So so just to summarize now a little bit more in depth with premillennialism. So while the the post mill side they would look at Revelation 20 and they actually draw a line. Uh, there was one teacher and I cannot remember his name. I think it might have been Doug Wilson. I can't remember uh, where they would literally draw a line in Revelation 20 and go, okay, everything from here previous that's past. Everything from here forward this is future. If we were to do that for the pre mill side. We would obviously go much earlier in the book of Revelation. Um, I cannot remember the chapter for, for the life of me right now. Maybe the first five chapters has like mm -hmm. the letter to the churches and a picture of the throne room in heaven and some of that stuff. Yeah, we would see that as, okay, this was talking about the present age at that time, our past now, and then moving on to everything else being after that in the future, uh, which, like we said, we talked about, plays a different, a, a huge role uh, in all this, with all the very vivid imagery and prophecy that's being talked about in that book. Uh, and then, we, like we said, we move into the millennium. So reviewing back, Revelation 19, Jesus is coming back. He, he binds Satan for a thousand years. And then uh, we have the millennial kingdom set up. Life is good on earth. Everything's going great. And then after the thousand years were up, this is where, by the way, 
uh, all the res we believe that the resurrection of the saints has already happened, rewards were received, uh, things of that nature. Oh, that's that's kind of debatable too. But you know, essentially, all the saints have been resurrected at this point. The church had been everyone that was still alive was raptured up at that point already and is down reigning with Christ. And then, as you read on through Revelation 20, if you see me staring away, I'm I'm looking at it right now. That's why. <laughs> uh, but Satan's freed. He tries to gather an army against God, obviously fails, fails miserably, thrown into the lake of fire, and then we get the great white throne judgment. And in that great white throne judgment, this is the second resurrection, the one you do not want to be a part of, because everyone is going to be guilty. If you can, talk about how you view... Now, this is something where we all probably agree on with our partial preterist brothers and sisters and our Amil people, but talk a little bit about that white throne judgment. Yeah, so it's really interesting. I hadn't previously studied this a lot, but some people did get some questions in my head, so I'll mention those in a minute. But I used to just understand the first resurrection is the good one, and the second resurrection is the bad one. But somebody along the way somewhere mentioned in the millennium, if there's people that are in natural bodies that die, could they also be involved in the second resurrection? And I was like, oh, yeah, like, what happens to those people? And they pointed out, basically, that you know, it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged each one according to his works and then skipped down and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So I was like, is it possible that maybe, you know, with the millennium, some people that die could also be present at this? I have no idea, but by and large, the second resurrection is associated with the bad one where people get thrown into the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that was confusing or not. No, no, that was good. I know most like uh, the 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 pre-mill teachers uh, that that I listen to, you know, would often say that that now this is all conjuncture because I don't believe that there's a specific verse pointing to this. But pretty much, if you are a believer and you are still in flesh and you die during the millennial reign, then you're instantly you know resurrected into a new body at that point in time. Once again, I I don't see any scripture supporting that. That's an inference, which inferences are not bad. You know, you can make inferences. You just have to admit that it's an inference and not fact. Uh, Definitely. <laughs> um, but that that that's that's closer probably to what I would see out of that because that is one of the questions when I was looking through uh, Revelation and I was like, so wait, what about these people and how is this going to work? And uh, it's definitely definitely very interesting. Uh, so we get, we, like we said, we're on the great white throne judgment. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everybody, like you said, the sea gives up their dead. Everyone is judged according to their deeds. And then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And this is where we get into the last chapter. Well, the la um, well, not the last, or, uh, last two chapters. Yeah. Last two chapters, Revelation 22. Mm -hmm. Um, we get into the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there's actually some debate, I don't know if you've heard around this, some people will try to make the argument that this earth that we're on is already going to be the new heaven and new earth, it's just going to be remade, uh, while others see this as God pretty much completely destroying everything and just kind of starting, I don't want to say starting over because we're still going to be there, but starting with a, a, new, a new rock that we're going to call earth at that point in time. Uh, anything you want to elaborate on that? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. It is uh, interesting in verse 21. It says, <clears throat> now I saw the new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So I have heard some people say that basically in the same way that water purified, you know, the earth in the first destruction with Noah, that fire in some capacity is going to basically reframe, cleanse and purify, <laughs> you know, the globe that we're currently on. But yeah, just like you, I've heard some people say that, you know, it's just a new one's going to be made. I really like the idea of like, like redeeming what presently exists. So I think it's kind of like really us. Cool if, yeah, like if he renovates, like, you know, from the form of what is and like makes it brand new. But yeah, I think it's it is kind of a mystery. But I more so than not have heard that view that people believe that um, basically this present earth is going to be cleansed and purified by fire and regenerated just like we are. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I and I can totally see that making sense. That's not one of those points that I would ever like sit there and ever have an argument with people on. Actually, even uh, the the millennium and everything, I don't like having an argument with people on period. But at the same time, uh, you know, I, I think that one's probably a little bit more important. Uh, it almost goes back to what I was saying. I, I have a buddy of mine and this is a common joke that people throw around, you know, like, oh, so what are you pre pre trib post trib? Are you uh, pre millennial post millennial? I'm pan millennial. You know, everything's going to pan out in the end anyways. And that utterly, that's the truth. I mean, it is all going to pan out. That's why, like, I don't spend, for me personally, <clears throat> a lot of time super focused on it. But I do think it's important because, like we said in the very beginning, that Revelation, because it holds so much. There's other passages, like we said, Daniel and Matthew and Ezekiel and other parts that talk about these uh, the end of times events and what's going to happen when it's all said and done. But at the end of the day, Revelation starts with a blessing and ends with a blessing. So it is a good book to read. Don't don't ever think that just because you're a... I'm going to disagree with Blake here, uh, with E-Disciple, because he, he, he he's of the mind where if you don't understand Christianity and you're a new Christian, you have no business reading Revelation, I would say the opposite. Not saying jump right into it, the first book you ever read, but... Who cares where your level of learning is at? This is what we have the Holy Spirit for. You know, we no longer need yeah. a teacher because we have the Holy Spirit. That's not a knock on teachers, but it's just saying you don't need one anymore. You have the Holy Spirit. Read it. Read the book. It starts with a blessing and ends with a blessing. You should read this book, no matter where you are in your faith right now, whether you are a baby Christian or a seasoned Christian. It's not something for theologians to read and only do. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so interesting. Second Thessalonians 2 has kind of a haunting section to it. It basically talks about loving the truth and people that don't love the truth. God is going to send them a strong delusion. And that's just like, ooh, that's scary. scary. Like, can you imagine God blinding your eyes to the truth? And so it's kind of interesting, but I almost wonder, you know, we have such an opportunity right now for most of us in the world to be able to read scripture, to know the Bible, to be, you know, just really engaging with God. And I think a lot of people are like, eh, if a temple pops up, you know what, I'll know what's up. Like, I'll figure it out. But they're not calculating the strong delusion that's coming. They're not calculating like the strong deception that's coming on the world. And it's not that we want to be fearful and paranoid, but we want to also heed what the Bible says because he warns his believers for a reason so often. And so I just think that um, we really uh, don't want to take for granted any times of peace that we're in. <laughs> you know, we really.
really want to always constantly be praying and asking the Holy Spirit for revelation. We want to be making time to be in scripture, like you said, in revelation, in the Bible, and just not taking for granted that things will suddenly someday become clear because unfortunately the Bible says for a lot of people, that's not going to be the case. They're just flat out going to be swept away. And so we do not want to be numbered among those that are swept away. So, yeah. yeah. And it, 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 I kind of look at it as you talked about how there's going to be a strong delusion. I kind of look at it just like Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh saw all these signs and wonders of God. And, you know, there's debate on, you know, who hardened Pharaoh's heart first, was it himself or was it God? But essentially there was a heart hardening there, uh, both from himself, Pharaoh himself, and from God. And even though Pharaoh saw all these amazing signs and wonders uh, that were unrepeatable, you know, he still never ended up believing. And I do want to throw this caveat in here. If you're a Christian right now, uh, and I don't know where you stand on this, so hopefully you don't freak out on me, but like if you're a Christian and you are a true believer in God, and you're worried about this, like you're going to somehow get swept away by all this, if you are going to be deceived by the Antichrist, always remain vigilant, always remain studied. But at the end of the day, remember who's more powerful. Yeah. Is it going to be God or the devil? And I truly believe, like, like it says in Revelation, you know, or it's not Revelation, I can't remember where it says, you probably remember, but, you know, it, it's going to be such a bad time where He's going to deceive many, if even the elect, if it were possible. And I always go back to that where it said, if it were possible. And I really see that as meaning God's going to protect you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be rough. You're going to suffer. But at the end of the day, God is going to keep you through his Holy Spirit, uh, strong in him. Uh, and just like it is in today's world, there's going to be times where we waver, or where we make mistakes, and where we sin, but by no means... Uh, does that mean you've lost your salvation? Uh, so that's kind of what I, where I say on that, because I know there are people that read this and will be very scared. Like, what if I'm the one? What if I accidentally take the mark? What if I do this? Well, if to accidentally take the mark means you had to actually worship the beast, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And like one of my favorite passages in all of scripture is John 15, because it basically just talks about how if we're abiding in him, oh, basically without abiding in him, you know, we can't do anything. And so whenever fear rises up in my heart, and I would encourage people when fear rises up in your heart, turn to Jesus and say like, Lord, help me, help me to understand, help me to know the truth, help me to stand firm. It's always all about him sustaining us. And it's interesting that Revelation 3, 10 passage that talks about being kept from the hour of trial, it's actually the word means protect in Greek. And it's actually, it even goes back to like John 15 through 17, you know, Jesus says, I do not want you to take them out of the world, but I want you to protect them from the evil one while we're on this earth. And so I think that's one element that can be missed by people of the futurist persuasion, especially pre-tribulational, is they miss the glory and the victory that will be true for God's true children, because we do get all of these glimpses of like the saints standing on the sea of glass with harps praising God. We see them before the throne of God worshiping. And so it's really interesting. It's like the bright's going to get brighter and the dark's going to get darker. And so for those who are in him, we will be sustained. We will be strengthened. We will be given everything 
everything that we need. Um, but at the same time, we just kind of don't want to be uh, lazy, just like that parable that actually comes right after, you know, Matthew 24. We don't want to be, you know, like the lazy bridesmaids that are just kind of like, ah, oh, whatever, whatever. We want to be actively engaged with God, actively abiding in him. And he'll strengthen us and give us everything that we need day by day. Yep. And that's spot on, actually. And uh, so we're we're kind of wrapping up here, I guess, towards the end. Uh, I feel like we're saying much stuff. Is there anything else that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to get out yet that you would want to tell anybody? Um, I would just say to always have a humble heart, <laughs> you know, when it comes to scripture and when it comes to these issues, because we can be wrong on things always be willing and open and even as i've been looking at other views at least i would like to believe that i have the attitude that hey if i find something in scripture that's different than what i believe then i will change to that position and i think as long as we really have like a soft humble open position as we look at these issues we're going to be okay i just think the only big danger that i would really encourage people not to do is like don't get wrapped up in a teacher like this guy is so cool i believe whatever he believes because he's so smart it sounds funny but people do it all the time no, no you know? it's it's easier to do than than people know yeah it, it, it does I, i've been caught up in that before oh yeah because it's like oh this person's so smart and so godly and wise whatever he believes on the end times is probably right and so i just encourage people be really careful with that approach and i would also encourage people to if they can start to become mindful of their presuppositions which is basically a fancy way of saying what beliefs are you taking with you to the Bible and what beliefs might you be reading into scripture? And so, for example, on the Israel issue, a big part of the reformed camp would be coming to scripture with the idea that God no longer has, you know, a place for national physical Israel. So I would just really caution people to be aware of that kind of bias and be willing to lay that down and just keep really, truly taking it back to God and saying, okay, Lord, what is the truth in your word? Even if I have to break fellowship, not really fellowship, but people do get kicked out of their churches for changing that's sad. these in my beliefs. That's, like, for that's real. very sad. Dallas Theological Seminary, you can't even be ordained if you're not pre-trib. Same with a lot Are of Are you serious? Oh, yeah, my gosh. Like it, but it's pre-trib's a big deal. Some people hold it like they hold, you know, the virginity of Mary, like it's a big deal. And so even if you have to end up breaking, you know, losing your pastoral position, just always go with truth over your camp. That'd be my like long message. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You gotta you gotta be obedient and listen to what the Holy Spirit's, you know, telling you in your life rather than what exactly the theologians of the day or the the teachers. You know, I, I mentioned John MacArthur on here. I love John MacArthur simply because he's opened my eyes to so much scripture and uh, it, in part he he had God used him in a way uh to, to bring me to an actual saving faith through his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, and then actually reading the Bible. Uh, you know, go figure, finding salvation in the Bible, geez. Uh, but, but, you know, this is where one of those areas where I would disagree with him on this. And before, I used to blindly just agree, like, no, yeah, it's absolutely right, correct, until once again, like I said, I started reading the Bible for myself. Now, granted, I would never get on a stage and debate him on it because he's been a scholar for like the past 50 years and he's probably pretty well entrenched in what he knows. So probably make me look like a fool. But <laughs> but yet, like the point of the thing is, is just because you have a, a teacher that you go to or you rely on 
doesn't mean that they're always going to be 100% right. And it's okay to disagree with things when it comes to these secondary and tertiary issues, especially revolving around this time. Don't be afraid to do that. And it's sad to say that I was kind of shocked that, you know, people, and I, I've probably been sheltered throughout the denominations I've been a part of, but that would, people would get kicked out of a church or even a seminary for not affirming something like premillennialism. You know, it's, it's kind of sad that that's there. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I do yeah, know I the invention, and this, is, this makes sense for my father especially. So he went to seminary. He was a very young Christian when he went to seminary. He got saved, and pretty much almost a year later, he was at seminary. And the seminary that he went to, I don't even know if it's around anymore, Piedmont Bible College, uh, the book that they, the Bible that they had to use was the Schofield Study Bible, which is a very, very, very dispensational, uh, you know, pre-trib, pre-millennial Bible. And, uh, you know, that I can understand now why he believes so much of what he believes based upon what I still, I actually have his Bible with me. And you can read the notes on there. It is very, very heavy. But that that was part of the whole indoctrination part of the uh, the whole pre-trib view. It was really came from one of that Bible that that study Bible right there. Not saying everything in that study Bible is wrong, but uh, you can understand why how people can get indoctrinated into these things. Uh, so with us getting ready to close on out, I want to say I want to leave off with some words uh, before before we finally close out, and it's in Revelation chapter, uh, where am I? Chapter 22, (laughs) sorry. And where it says in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. If anybody is out there living in some type of fear that they're not going to be saved or that they're going to fall or at some point in time, or if they're not going to able to be saved or something, you know, read, read a verse like that. If you, this is an open invitation from Christ in this book to come to him, cast your burdens down and just follow him. This is one of the last invitations that we see in the entire Bible. Probably the last, I believe it come, come to him. No reason to be afraid, especially when talking about all these very scary events. God's going to lift you up through the entire process like we talked about. And as John said in verse 20, uh, come, Lord Jesus, come. I love that. And that's one of my constant prayers is, is come. <laughs> I'm ready to be free from this body of flesh that, that constantly sins and does things that displeases you. I am ready. <laughs> Amen. so well it's been great thank you for having me (laughs) no it's been awesome before you go though uh let people know uh where can they follow you if they want to hear anything else that you have to say uh any youtube channels tiktok well i know you're on tiktok but go, go ahead throw it out there Definitely. So my main channel is called Happy, Holy, Healthy Life. And in that channel, I have links to another two random channels that I did. Uh, Trish Hepzibah is kind of like just prophecy only stuff. And then I have a random channel about my teaching experiences. And then on TikTok, that's kind of primarily where I hang out on a day to day basis. But that's also Happy, Holy, Healthy Life. All right. Happy, Holy, Healthy Life. So by all means, 
do follow her. And when I say she has a lot of good stuff on prophecy, she has a lot. I, I don't know if I told you when I thought I was going to interview you, um, when Blake told, told me to reach out to you, I thought you were going to be a, uh, very big, like pre-trib, you know, rat. And then I started reading through your stuff. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be hard <laughs> to stay neutral, which I probably did a very bad job of. Cause we agreed on so many things when it came to comes to this uh type of stuff but it was a pleasure and it was awesome to have you on and thank you and maybe one day we can get you back on because i would love to hear you talk a little bit more about your uh two different backgrounds between uh calvinism and uh pentecostalism <laughs> that's an interesting combo you don't see too much <laughs> so that oh, would true. be awesome uh but beyond yeah. that thank you so much for coming and for everybody listening if you have any questions by all means hit us up write us at ibnw podcast stands for i believe now what ibnw podcast at gmail.com or you can find me uh on social media just type in that name or if you want my tiktok since I've been advertising it out more lately. Just find me at Saved by the Savior on there. I never made one on the podcast because I didn't think TikTok was actually going to be a thing until it became a thing. So, <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you all later. Have a good one.